Well, let's pray together. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would let every heart prepare him room, that our hearts and our minds would be open to the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and that we would be looking to him, worshiping him, thinking on him, being conformed to his image in every way. So we pray as we come to this text that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I have always been kind of a sucker for the Christmas season. I really do love it. Uh, I love the decorations. I love putting up the tree. I love the candy and the eggnog. I love the presents under the tree and the anticipation of Christmas morning. I love Christmas music, not just the sacred music. Uh, I'm an unabashed connoisseur of all the schmaltzy stuff that we hear at this kind of a season. I can belt out, I think, every single word of Harry Connick Jr.'s Christmas album, the first one. I even love the song Last Christmas. Um, uh, the, the original by Wham is still my favorite. I get super excited about all the covers of that song. Um, I love Christmas movies. Our whole family loves Christmas movies. We have this a short list that we always make our way through every year. We make a point to watch it together as a family. White Christmas, we've already watched it twice. Even my kids, they're little. They know who Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and... Rosemary Clary, Clooney and that other lady, I forget, always forget her name. Um, the Muppet Christmas Carol, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Charlie Brown Christmas. Um, I bet if we were to pull the room, I wouldn't be the only person here who's, who's kind of a sucker for all the stuff that we do during the Christmas season. Anybody here want to admit to listening to your Christmas music in November? Okay, so oh, look at that, that's, that's very bad. Um, anybody here want to admit to watching Hallmark Christmas movies? I saw my very first one. Look at that right there. I saw my very first one uh, this year. Uh, I was over at Randall Breland's house uh, some weeks ago. <laughs> he wasn't watching that. He wasn't watching that, but he had received a, a, a package in the mail. And it was, it was the tackiest Christmas sweater I had ever seen. He ordered it just to go to his office Christmas party. So, so I know that, that you Christmas revelers are out there. I'm not the only one. I've seen you, and, and I don't judge you much. Um, no, we, we, we all enjoy this, the, all these things that, that come around in, in this time of year at this season. Um, and I enjoyed it even, even as a kid. My whole, my whole family did. And, and, and when I was a kid, it, it always used to puzzle me why my dad didn't get as excited about all this stuff like uh, my mom and my sister and me all did. Especially when it came to decorating the Christmas tree. Kind of the first thing we did at, at the Christmas season, we, we would always go buy a live tree and we'd bring it home. And he would, he would help us to put it up and to put the lights on. But then after that, he would just sort of sit and watch us. And he wasn't grumpy. He was just somber. And as a kid, I always thought, how can I be so filled with excitement? He seems just sort of somber through, through all of this. And so I asked him about it one year, and he, he explained it to me um, why. Uh, 
During his freshman year in college, his dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the last stage of his dad's illness and the, was the last uh, happened during the Christmas season, and the last full day of his dad's life was on Christmas Day in 1963. And so his dad was, they didn't have much of a Christmas that year. He said that they got a little tiny Christmas tree. It, sat, it was sitting on top of the television. That's all they had. And TVs were small then. You can imagine how small that was. And they were, his dad was in the hospital and wasn't even conscious. And then the day after Christmas, his dad died. And so for, for my dad, the grief of that day eclipsed the cheer of the Christmas season. And so it's hard to get excited about tinsel and lights when you're obviously when your dad is lying on his, his deathbed. And so there were certain parts of the Christmas season ever since then that took him back to that sad Christmas back in 1963. And the heaviness of it followed him all the way into adulthood. If there are many in this room who enjoy all the smalty stuff at Christmas, I bet there are also many who are here, who have difficulty enjoying Christmas like that. Now, it could be just personality differences, but perhaps there are many who have difficulty because of painful experiences from your past. Or perhaps even painful experiences in your present. And the grief that this broken world has dealt you eclipses any kind of joy that other people seem to be having in all the trivialities that sometimes surround Christmas. And, and I want to say to you, I want to argue to you that, that that's actually not all bad. In fact, I think that I can make the case that you probably won't ever celebrate Christmas as it was meant to be celebrated until you come to a place of brokenness and need before God. The kind of need that is reflected in the hymns that we sing, actually, during this season, but we're often not paying attention to. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. Do you feel the brokenness of that? It's only when you feel in your bones the brokenness of this world and of the human condition that you can even begin to long for the appearance of a savior. And sadly, so many of our cultural traditions are trending away from what our proper focus should be at this season. And so much of it seems to be designed to get us preoccupied with other things. We drove past the mall this morning on the way here. And the parking lot was already filling up. Susan said, you know, I, th I think they opened it up early this morning for, for the, the Christmas season. I, you know, I confess, even as someone who has enjoyed all the schmaltzy stuff at Christmas for my whole life, every year I find myself less and less satisfied by the pablum of the season and more and more desirous of something more. I identify, actually, with Charlie Brown at the end of the show. Is there anybody here who knows what Christmas is all about, he says. So I'm not here this morning to dump on, on Christmas traditions even all the sentimental things that we do. We have, our, have ours and we'll keep them. But I am here to make much of what all that stuff is supposed to be about. It's about God sending his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
And if you miss that, you have missed everything that matters. I want you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21. Most of you are familiar with this passage because this is where Jesus has his famous meeting with the Pharisee named Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus that if he wants to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And so after Nicodemus hears this, he's befuddled by Jesus, by this teaching. Jesus tells him after that, in verses 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so Jesus compares himself to that incident that we know of from the Old Testament where people were being bit by poisonous serpents, and if they wanted to be saved and not killed, they had to look up to this serpent, bronze serpent that Moses had put on a standard, and they would be saved. They would be healed. Jesus is saying that he has to be lifted up. The Son of Man has to be lifted up on a standard. And he was. He would eventually be, after this conversation, lifted up on a standard when he hung on the cross and he died. Anyone who wished to have eternal life has to look up at him and believe. And so the point of this paragraph, verses 16 to 21, is simply to say that this is precisely why God sent his son into the world. If Advent is about God sending his son into the world, then these verses are in a very profound sense about Advent. Before there was a manger or an inn or a Mary or a Joseph, even before there was an Israel or an Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, before there was an Adam, before there was creation. Before all of that, you have God in his eternal counsels determining the reasons why his son would come into the world. And verses 16 through 21 are explaining all of that. And in fact, what we're getting here is Jesus' commentary on Christmas. Jesus himself is telling us what he thinks Christmas is all about. It's about and he tells us about the purposes for his being sent into the world. He reveals his own father's purposes, and there are four. He says that God sent his son to give eternal life. God sent his son to save the world. God sent his son to expose evil, and God sent his son to reveal God's work. Now, we're going to work our way through each of those four things, and look at the first one. God sent his own son to give eternal life. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now that word for alerts us to the fact that Jesus is about to give us a further explanation why it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up. It was necessary because God so loved the world. Now did you catch that? The reason that God sent his son into the world is not because of anything lovely in us, but because of all that is lovely in God. God loves us, which means that he has a warm regard and affection and interest in us. He cherishes us and he has designs of salvation towards us. And so in this verse, the greatness of his love is seen in a couple of remarkable ways. First, the greatness of his love appears in the object of his love. Notice that it says that God so loved the world. 
Don't miss this. The world in John's gospel is not a neutral term like we use it. If I say, you know, the whole world understands that one plus one equals two, you know that by world, I'm just saying everybody understands that one plus one equals two. But when that word world appears in John's gospel, it means more than just everybody, okay? Uh, John chapter one in verse 10 says this, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him which means that the world is a place comprised of people who don't recognize their Savior, who don't know God, and who don't even recognize Him when He's sitting in front of them. Jesus is sitting in front of Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't see the king sitting in front of him. That's why Jesus has to say, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. The world does not know Him. That's what the world is like. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is a place where people lust for things they ought not be lusting for. They desire for sin. They want evil. They don't want God. That's what the world is. Verse 17, and the world is passing away. And also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. That means that the world is a place that's warring against God and is therefore under judgment. So in John's gospel, when you see that word world, it's not a generic reference to humanity. It's a specific reference to humanity in its fallen condition, to humanity in its rebellion against God. So when Jesus says that God loves the world, you've got to feel the full weight of that. He means to say that God loves sinners. God is kindly disposed to and has an interest in saving the very people who don't give a fig about him. The greatness of God's love is seen in the fact that God loves sinners. God loves his enemies even. And that means that God loves us. The whole reason that we celebrate great Christmas is grounded in and caused by God's love for us. If God doesn't love the world, there's no major, there's no manger, there's no sending of the Son, there's no inn, there's no Mary, no Joseph, no wise men or shepherds, there's no cross, there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no eternal life, there's no hope beyond this life. All of those good things come to us because they are flowing out to us from God's love towards us. God's love for sinners, even while they were yet sinners. So you've got to see the greatness of God's love is in part seen in the object of his love. He loves people who don't deserve to be loved. You don't deserve it. And I don't either, but he does it anyway. It's not dependent upon us. It's all based on his kind disposition that he has had from all eternity towards his people. God loves the world. But there's another way that you see the greatness of God's love in this. It's not only in who God loves, but in how God loves. Notice that the text says that God so loved the world. Sometimes we read that so 
as kind of an intensifier, like, like when we say, oh, wow, it took us so long to get home. And what we mean by that, so long to get home, is it sort of intensifies the length, right? It took us a really long time to get home. And some people read that word so in this verse in the same way, as if it's kind of intensifying love. God so loved the world. You know, he loved us this big. That, that's not really the sense here of what's going on. The word so simply means in this way. That's what it means. Jesus says that God loves the world in a very specific way. And look what he says. He loves us in this way that he gave his only son. God fleshes out his love for us by becoming flesh, literally. The, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's not just a happy feeling that God has towards us. He does more than that. He comes and dwells among us. So this text says that God loves the world by giving his only son to the world, not just to take on flesh, but also to die in our place. And, and, and I think if you're reading the ESV, I don't do this often, but I'm going to do this right here because it's important. There's a, there's a bad translation here. The ESV mistranslates this verse saying that God gave his only son. The correct way to render this verse would specify that this is his only begotten son. If it's not in your Bible, you write it in because it's there in the original. It's his only begotten son. He is the son of God, but his begottenness from the father is not like our begottenness, which it, Jesus talks about earlier in the chapter. We're begotten of God through the Holy Spirit. We call it the new birth or regeneration. But Jesus is God's only begotten son, which means he is begotten in a way that's a little bit different than ours. His begottenness is unique and, and quite different from, from ours. Christ did not become the son of God at his birth. He had a begottenness that preceded his birth. He did not even become the son of God at his conception. Christ has always been, is now, and always will be the son of God. Of God. Our being born of God takes place in time. The Son of God is begotten from all eternity, which means that His begottenness has no beginning and no end. We have a temporal relation of origin from God. Christ has an eternal relation of origin from God, which means that He is, as we confess every week before communion, He's begotten, not made. Jesus' begottenness distinguishes his personhood from the Father's, but it is also the ground of his sharing in the same divine essence with his Father. I know that's a mouthful, but here's the bottom line. Jesus being the Son of God means that he is God. That's what I'm trying to say. So when God gives his Son, it's nothing less than the deity giving himself for us. What greater gift is there than God giving himself for us? There is no greater gift. There's no greater love than that. Why does God give his son? Not merely to be incarnate, but to be crucified on a Roman cross. Why? So that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. That's the end game. To rescue sinners from perishing so that they can have life everlasting. This is great news. I, I just wonder how many people here this morning, within the sound of my voice, are wondering if you're loved. Is there anyone in this room, maybe perhaps, who gets out of bed day after day with a sense that dark clouds are gathering over your head, with a sense of a kind of growing dread that no person and no God loves you? Perhaps you have come to believe that you are out of a holy God's reach, that you have done too much ill and have embraced too much darkness for God to have anything to do with you. If that is you this morning, I'm here to give you what the good news is. You can exchange that daily dread for daily bread. God loves the world, which means that God loves sinners. Are you a sinner? If you are, then you are precisely the kind of person that God loves. Sinners are the only kind of people that there are in the world, except for Jesus. That means that's the only kind of people that there are to love. And God loves sinners, and God loves you. He loves you so much that he, that he knows that you can't save yourself from your daily dread. He knows that only he can save you. And that's exactly what he stepped out of heaven to do. But you can't earn the salvation that he's offering you. You can't be good enough to deserve it. You'll never deserve it. I will never deserve it. None of us will. But praise God, he's not waiting for you to deserve it. He just wants you to receive it as a gift. And the way you receive it is simply by trusting in Jesus and in his death and resurrection to save you, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so the question before every person in this life is, why would you resist this gift? Of all the gifts that you've received in your life, why would you resist this gift? All the kids in here, why would you resist this gift? Of all the gifts you're going to receive this Christmas, you need to receive, receive this gift first. You need to trust in Jesus, and you need to do it now. So my first point is the longest point. God sent his, own, his son to give eternal life in verse 16. But the second one is this. God sent his son to save the world. Everybody look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent his son into the world to sinners, not to condemn sinners, but to save sinners and that word that's translated as condemn is actually a word that means to judge. In fact, some of your translations will say it that way. It's, um, the NASB says God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. And so some people have read that and they thought, wow, that really looks like a contradiction with other parts of the gospel where it says that Jesus does indeed come to judge the world, like John 9.39. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world. So that those who do not see, see may see, and those who see may become blind. John chapter 5 and verse 26, Jesus says that the Father gives to the Son authority to execute judgment. 
because he is the son of man. So how in the world does it make sense in John 3 for Jesus to say that God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but then to turn around in chapter 5 and in chapter 9 to say that he did? Well, there's actually no contradiction here at all. What's going on here is that Jesus' saving work involves the, the shedding of light and the exposing of evil. And as, we find, as we'll find out later in the passage, some people will come to that light, but some people will flee from that light. And so even though the light is designed to draw people to Christ, to save them, some people don't want it. Even though Christ comes to save, he's going to cause a division. And that division, those who come to the light versus those who don't come to the light, will be the same division that we see at the final judgment. But the important thing to note is that Jesus' aim in coming is not to condemn the world, but to save it. Much of the world won't have it, but that, is, that doesn't change the fact that his aim is to save the world. Which brings us to verse 18. He says in verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Notice that Jesus uses the word believe here three times in that one verse. That word believe is all over John's gospel. He uses it 98 times throughout the gospel. Always as a verb, never as the noun. Always it's something you're supposed to, to do. Over and over it's clear that believing is what leads to eternal life. Nobody can earn eternal life through good works. They have to receive it as a gift by believing in Jesus. But this verse is accenting what happens when somebody fails to believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you are not condemned, but inherit eternal life. If you don't believe in Jesus, it says you are condemned already. Now, this is so profound, and I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is teaching us that we are born condemned already. We come out of the box broken under a sentence of death. There's no baby born in the world that anybody, any one of us will look at and go, that kid's going to live forever. We know better than that. We know that every single one of us are on a one-way ticket to dying. And you can't make it stop. It's going to happen if the Lord doesn't return first. We are all mortal. Every single one of us will die. We are born under the curse that God pronounced in Genesis 3. So God said, the day that you eat of this, you will die. Adam and Eve became mortal. Every single one of us inherited that sentence over us. You are born into the world condemned already. People don't even realize that. We reap not only what we have sown, but we have already reaped what Adam has sown. When Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced the sentence of death over them and they died. We have that same sentence hanging over our heads too. So does every other human being on the planet. So this is what Jesus is saying. The person who does not believe in Jesus is left to that judgment that God pronounced in Genesis 3. They will die and there will be no eternal life on the other side of that death. On the other side of dying, those who die in their sin, they will experience what John calls elsewhere the second death in Revelation 20.10. The lake of fire where people will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Why? Because John 3 says, failing to believe in the one who died to pay for your sins means that you are consigned to pay for your own sins. And it will take an eternity to do that. But notice that the good news of these verses is that this is not what God wants. God sent his son into the world to save the world, not to condemn it. God wants all people to to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants sinners to turn from their sin and turn to their Savior. That's what he wants. Some years ago, I went to my dermatologist for my regular checkup, and he located this spot on my back that he said needed to be removed. No big deal. I'd had this done before. And, um, but this one actually ended up being different. In the past, the doctor removed the mole, and I'd get a report back saying that it was benign, but that didn't happen this time. This time, I got a call back saying that the pathology report suggested that this was precancerous, and they weren't even sure that they got it all when they removed it. I had to go back. Now, what were my choices at this point? Well, I'll tell you what I didn't say. I didn't say, no, let's just leave it. I didn't do that. Because what was happening in my skin wasn't something that was going to be a problem. It was already a problem. To leave it alone was to leave me in a problem that I already had, not one that was going to happen at some unspecified point in the future. So I came back and they cleared all the margins and took out any trace of those carcinogenic cells. I think some people treat their spiritual lives lives as if their problems are something that's just sort of out in the indefinite future. At some point in the future, they'll think about it. Maybe after they die, they, they'll answer to God for their lives. Maybe they're thinking, I'll, I'll make a case at that point. Maybe they'll think they'll make a case that they have done enough in their lives for, to, to avoid condemnation and judgment. But, but that's just a fool's errand. You need to understand that apart from Christ, you are under judgment already. The sentence has been pronounced. Your death sentence has already been handed down. And it has been appointed for you once to die and then to face judgment. So your death and condemnation are already a certainty apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, you are already alienated from the life of God. The question you have to ask is if you're going to let that ride or if you are going to trust in the only one who can deliver you from death and from the lake of fire on the other side of death. Your situation apart from Christ is already desperate, which means that you need to come to Christ right now if you haven't already. You need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ right now. Jesus says that if you do that, even though you die, yet shall you live. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life, and you won't be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus will one day call you forth. You will live and dwell with him in a new heavens and a new earth forever. That is what God sent his son into the world to do. And so you, you must believe in order to receive this. You must turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. God sent his son to give eternal life. God sent his son to save the world. Third, God sent his son to expose evil. Everyone look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. 
because their works were evil. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. But it is nevertheless true that Jesus' coming into the world is like a judgment. And Jesus explains what that judgment is like. It's like light coming into the world. Now think about this. What does light do? It illuminates things. It makes it so that you can see things that you couldn't otherwise see in darkness. The light coming into the world, in this case, is Jesus himself. And the light of Christ is revealing, I think, two major things. It's revealing who God is and it's revealing who we are. So Jesus is this light coming into the world, revealing who God is. John 1.18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, right? Jesus is the God, the begotten God. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The only person who's seen God full on in His own glory is God. And so Jesus, when He comes, He's explaining God. He knows Him like no other because He is God. John 6, 46, not that any man has seen the Father except the one who's from God. He has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is look in Jesus. In, in fact, Jesus would say in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So, so Jesus is coming to reveal the true nature of God. All of his holiness, all of his goodness, all of his justice, all of it, Jesus is revealing that in a way that has never been seen before. So he's not only revealing the true nature of God, but he's also revealing the true nature of us. Because look at verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, look what this means. By nature, we don't want our lives in the light of day. We would rather keep our lives in the dark. Why? Because we have much to be ashamed of in our lives. Every single one of us. We have much in our lives that is disgraceful and, and sinful, frankly. And so we would rather not have our evil exposed. So by nature, apart from Christ, we flee from the light. But who's the light here? It's Jesus. Which means if you're fleeing from the light from your deeds being exposed, that means you're fleeing from Jesus. We love darkness because, sadly, so many, so many times we love evil and we don't want to give it up. Look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. All these people, everyone who does wicked things, who are these people who do wicked things? Well, it's all of us. All of us do wicked things. And apart from grace, our nature is to hate the light because we hate being exposed. We prefer to keep our sin concealed. That is the human condition. Apart from grace, that's what people do. We're running like cockroaches into the darkness because we don't want to be exposed. I think you can see this, John, this dynamic play out in, in John chapter 8 where um, Jesus has this dispute with the Pharisees. Pharisees are arguing with Jesus about who he really is. Jesus says to the Pharisees that his father sent him, and they question him, where is your father? 
Jesus counters, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And so Jesus goes on to tell them that um, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free. But they respond, well, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. Jesus says, I know that you're Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me. The Pharisees are claiming to be God's covenant children, yet they want to kill the Messiah that God has sent to them. And, and Jesus is telling them, I know what your intentions are towards me. You see what he's doing there? He's turning the light on and exposing them. You want to kill me. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. I have a father, and he's not the same guy as your father. They say, Abraham is our father. And then they say, we weren't born of fornication like some people. I think implying maybe he was, Jesus was born of fornication. Maybe picking up or, or alluding to the strange circumstances uh, around Jesus' birth. We weren't born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus tells them if God were their father, they wouldn't be trying to kill him, but they would love him and that they would keep and listen to his word. But because they don't listen to his word, you know what Jesus says to them? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. You see how Jesus talked to the Pharisees? They're walking around in darkness, leading people into darkness. Jesus comes in and flips the light switch on and says, this is who you really are. You think Abraham's your father? You think God's your father? Your father's the devil. Jesus is shedding light on the Pharisees and exposing them. And what do they do? Do they come to the light? They do not. They resist the light. They say that Jesus, twice they say Jesus is possessed by a demon. They seek to kill the light. They hate the light. They don't come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed for what they are. See? I think it's easy to read this and, and, and to kind of look down your nose at the, the Pharisees and how foolish they were. But Jesus is telling us in John chapter 3 that this is what every sinner does apart from grace, which means that you and I are guilty of this. We don't want the light shed on our sin. We enjoy our sin too much. We want to keep it under wraps so that we can coddle it and keep it going on for as long as possible. The only problem with this is that it's a surefire strategy to remain under judgment. If you're here this morning and you're running from the light, you need to know that it is time to stop running. Because running from the light means that you are running to condemnation. And there is no sin that is worth that. Better to come to the light than to flee from it and be exposed anyway as you pass into condemnation and judgment. So God sent his son to give eternal life, to save the world, to expose evil. And then finally, God sent his son to reveal God's work. Look at that last verse there in verse 21. But whoever does what is true 
comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The person who does what is true is the person who trusts in Jesus and who is therefore living faithfully before God. That kind of a person comes to the light because they have nothing to hide. That doesn't mean that they have no sin in their life. Okay, This verse doesn't say that. This verse doesn't say that this person wants to show off their good works. That's not why they come to the light, just so they can you know, proudly come and you know, sort of strut around about how awesome they are. Why does this person come to the light? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Which means something like, so that it can be clearly seen that his works have been brought about by God. Do you see why this person's not ashamed to come to the light? It's not because he's proud of the good works he's accomplished. It's because he realizes that his good works are only the result of what God has done in and through him by grace. The person who believes in Jesus and is sanctified by the Spirit has no grounds for boasting. On the contrary, everything good about him is a result of God's grace. That person comes into the light because he wants to show off what God has done. And in this case, that means showing off that God has saved a sinner and transformed his life. Are you a person who runs from the light or are you a person who comes to the light? How you answer that question tells everything that is most important about you. When your sin is threatened to be exposed, do you run or do you come to the light? That tells whether or not you are running from Jesus or coming to Jesus. Now, Jesus not only brought the light into the, to the lives of the Pharisees, he brought it to other people too. Do you remember the woman at the well? The Samaritan woman? Not everybody fled from the light. Some people came to the light. Do you remember what Jesus does with the woman at the well? He does the same thing that he did with the Pharisees. He exposed her. He has this conversation with her. He asks her for water. She's surprised. Why are you asking me for water? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. Jews aren't supposed to have anything to do with Samaritans. Jesus doesn't care about that. He talks to her. Jesus says, if you would have known who you were talking to, you would have asked me for living water, and I would have given it. Except by living water, Jesus explains he's not talking about literal water, but about eternal life. She ends up saying to him, that she wants that. And you know how Jesus responds? Turns the lights on. He says, go call your husband and come here. She claims not to have a husband. Jesus says, right, you don't have a husband. You have five husbands. And at this point, she doesn't flee like the cockroaches. She doesn't act like the Pharisees. Even though Jesus knows the truth about her and that she's been with all these different men, Rather than fleeing from the light, she comes to the light. And Jesus reveals to her that he's the long-awaited Messiah come to save his people. And you know what she does next? She believes this, and she goes out to all the men in the city. And you know what she says? Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Jesus exposes her sin. And she goes and tells everybody, come see this guy who exposes everything that you are. Could this be the Messiah? She didn't run from the light. She came to the light. She found eternal life like a spring of water welling up inside her. So here's the question that I'll leave you with this morning. Is this how you have encountered Jesus? 
Are you like the Pharisees running and hiding from the light? Insulting the light in a vain attempt to discredit Jesus because his life and teaching expose you. If that's you, you need to know that this text says you've been judged already. You're on a one-way ticket to a death and condemnation more terrible than you will be able to bear. If that is you, today is the day to turn from that. Today is the day to come into the light and to let the chips fall where they may. The good news is that God sent his son into the world so that we would experience the light, not as the Pharisees, but as the Samaritan woman did. So that we would glory in our lives being exposed by the light of Jesus. So that we would come into the light, receive eternal life, so that our transformed lives will be shown to the world as a trophy of God's grace in us. That's what God wants for you this Christmas. And that's what God wants for you forever. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for all those in this room who may be even now fleeing from the light. I pray that you would turn them around and to see that no matter what kind of difficulty it is in being exposed, that it is more precious to have you. And I pray that you would draw sinners to the light, away from their sin and to you, and that you would save them. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters who are here, who are running from the light. Lord, I pray that you would grant your people repentance. Help us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters who are here, who are grieving, still family members who have gone on, and the holidays are so difficult. Others who are grieving families that are broken apart, are not what they should be, have never been what they should be. Lord, I pray that you would come and minister to your people. Focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And help us to know that you love us and you never leave us or forsake us. And we have hope because of that. Lord, um, help the world to see that everything good about us has been wrought by you. And we pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand again.